Good to have you with us again. We're so thankful that you're here today. If you are and you have a Bible, turn to the book of Acts. We're in Acts chapter 13. We're going to be wrapping up this chapter today, and we're going to be studying about how to bring a feast to the midst of a famine, how to bring a feast to a famine. That's the title of today's message. We're reading from um, the book of Acts, and we're going to look at the last section of chapter 13, starting in verse 38 and working down to verse 52. Acts 13, starting again in verse 38. This is in the middle, towards the end, really, of Paul's sermon in Pisidian Antioch. And he says, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if someone tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and they went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Father, we bow our heads before you this morning and we thank you for the privilege of reading this section of Acts chapter 13 as we're winding down on Paul's incredible sermon, the longest recorded sermon of his in the New Testament. And we pray as we reflect on all that was taught, all that was done, that you would stir our hearts up to respond to Paul's message inspired by the Holy Spirit in the way that you would want us to respond today, that we would listen, that we would learn that we would be grateful, that we would know that if we're in Christ today, we have been forgiven of everything that the law could never cleanse us from, that we would be washed today and eager to lean into our service to you, eager to be greater evangelists, eager to be greater Christians in our dependence upon you and how we live out our faith each and every day. So stir us up today, Lord, as we look at these things together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. When Paul and Barnabas entered Pisidian Antioch, this location where he gave his sermon, they found a city that was really starving for the word of God. 
In that synagogue there in that city, there was at least one synagogue. There may have been others, but there was a large Jewish population who was there and listening to Paul's message, as well as many Gentiles who feared God. And in spite of all of these religious people, there was one message that the city lacked. It was the message of forgiveness. Paul told the people of Antioch something that they had never heard. And through Jesus, everyone who believes can be freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Paul is preaching a message on justification by faith, justification by grace, justification based on Christ and his atoning sacrifice alone. Now, in many ways, this is not a new teaching. There had always been the message of salvation that would have to depend on the grace of God. But unfortunately, this true message of forgiveness by faith alone had been replaced by a message of works righteousness by the Jewish culture. But listen to what the prophet Isaiah said back in Isaiah 55, 1 through 2. He said, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. So in that passage in Isaiah 55, these verses talk about the mercy of God, that you could only receive forgiveness without your own hard work and effort. You can't buy it with your own money and with your own price because God gives. And that passage in Isaiah talks about don't waste your money on that which will never satisfy. Don't waste your time and effort trying to earn salvation by keeping your own traditions. He challenges his listeners in Isaiah 55 to eat what is good, that which comes from the mercy of God that which is provided by God's provision, that which is given by God's grace. Delight yourselves in the rich food which God gives. And then a few verses later, in Isaiah 55, verses 6 and 7, it says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon so this message of Isaiah was a message of repentance and faith, which leads to salvation, that God will abundantly pardon those who come, those who come with repentance, those who come with belief, those who come to God broken. Well, this is the same message that the Jews of the first century needed to hear in Antioch, and so Paul and Barnabas brought it to them. They brought them a feast of the mercy of God. And strangely enough, the people gave a mixed response to the offer of the spiritually nourishing food. Some rejoiced and they ate, but others rejected and they starved. How Paul responded suggests two principles for evangelism. First, when there's a famine in the land, feed the hungry and ignore the rest. That might sound a little bit harsh, but... When there's a job to do, you must stay focused. Paul and Barnabas devoted their time to preaching to those who were hungry for the truth. And when the synagogue leaders, as we read in this passage, shut them down, they preached to the Gentiles. 
And when the town became inhospitable, they shook the dust from their feet and they went down to the next town and found hungry people down the highway. The second principle of evangelism we could take from this is that you can't feed people who don't want to eat. Paul and Barnabas didn't try to talk fools out of their foolishness. They called rebellion what it was and looked for people who were starving for wisdom. And they continued to preach only to those who wanted to hear the word of God. And by feeding those who wanted to eat, they gave an opportunity for the hungry to respond to the call of God. And by following those two simple guidelines, Paul and Barnabas covered a lot more ground in a short amount of time. They bore the great responsibility of proclaiming the gospel where it had not been heard. But they didn't take on the responsibility of how people responded. That had to be a work of grace done by our sovereign God. And so this method that they used gave them courage to continue on even when they faced opposition. This gave them courage in the face of, unknown, of the unknown and resiliency in how to respond to the opposition. Well, this morning, I want to give you five headings as we examine the end of Paul's sermon here to Pisidian Antioch and as we examine how his audience responded. Let's start with number one of our five headings today. The law was never able to save you. In your first blank, if you're taking notes, says forgiveness of sins comes through Jesus alone. Forgiveness of sins comes through Jesus alone. It's kind of like Paul gave part one to his sermon, part two, he takes a deep breath in verse 38 and he says, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, referring to Christ, who he had just talked about, he, he, that Jesus was the Messiah and that he was the greater David and that he was crucified and resurrected, it's through this man that forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Again, just reviewing Paul's sermon so far in verses 16 to 25, Paul preached from the Old Testament about all the, event, the events that would lead up to the arrival of the Messiah. In verses 26 to 37, Paul preached about the rejection, the crucifixion, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as Paul concludes his sermon in the verses that we're looking at here, verses 38 through 41, he stresses that forgiveness comes through the cross of Jesus and not through the law of Moses. Comes through the cross of Jesus, not the law of Moses. And since we all fall short of the glory of God, we all need forgiveness. And in the Old Testament, the Jewish mindset began to focus on the thought that forgiveness was something that you could earn. That being at peace with God was something that you did by keeping God's law perfectly. That was the only way that you could be just with God in the Old Testament mindset, is that somehow you had to keep the law perfectly. In fact, the Pharisees were so careful about this that they added to God's law their own man-made laws like stringent dietary restrictions, civil duties, and Sabbatarian laws that went beyond anything that Moses had ever prescribed. And such legalism, being mere human effort, was powerless to restrain the sinful tendencies of man's fallen nature. You see, when you fall into sin, it's not like the response to that is, I got to do more. I got to do better next time. I've got to be more careful in what I do next time. That's not necessarily the first response to sin. That's a healthy response. But first, there must be repentance 
And there must be a dependence on the Lord to wash you and to cleanse you. But the human tendency for these Gentiles, or excuse me, for the Jews, and maybe for some legalistic Gentiles today, is that they tended to focus more on law-keeping. That was the focus that they had been drawn to, is on law-keeping. And it imposed a crushing burden that no one could bear. In fact, Jesus says about this to the Pharisees in Matthew 23, 2 through 5, he says, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat and do not observe whatever they tell you, but do the works that they do, for they preach but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. He's saying the Pharisees are trying to do all the law of Moses in order to earn salvation, but they don't really do all the law of Moses. And then they've added to the law of Moses extra laws, while the Pharisees themselves only follow the laws that are externally visible by others so they can brag and boast on what they do. And Jesus has got their number and he's confronting them on what it is that they're doing. The Pharisees had indeed placed themselves above the law of Moses because they preached the law But that's all they preached was law, 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 and then they added extra laws. But Jesus says, you're not even keeping some of the law. There's certain things they personally avoided, like their own pride and and keeping the idea of of mint and cumin, which was a smaller part of the law, why they were willing to swallow a camel. And Jesus gets into all of this, uh, this, this understanding that they really weren't ever obeying all of it anyway. And then we read something similar as Jesus continues to confront this kind of attitude. He says in Luke eleven forty six, he said, Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. So he said, hey, woe to you. Woe to you. All you're doing is preaching law, and you're adding man-made law. You're not even keeping it, and you're heaping burdens upon the people that you're addressing. And this all gets focused on in the Jerusalem council that we'll be at in a few weeks in Acts 15, verse 10, where Peter stood up and said, now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? So they're talking about the New Testament church, believing Jews and Gentiles, should we keep Old Testament restrictions? And and, uh, Peter is arguing in that passage that we'll get to, hey, Guys, this is not the church. The church focuses on Christ and spiritual obedience to the new covenant. We're no longer living under that old covenant, and we're certainly not living under the extra laws that were added by Pharisees. And so here in Acts 13, Paul's already kind of addressing this, and he's laboring to, to, to help them understand that if they think that keeping the law is going to save them, it's never gonna happen. And that's why in verse 38, the verse that we're looking at, Paul wants to make sure that it is clearly known that it is only through Christ that your sins can be forgiven. Paul doesn't say you got to keep all of the Old Testament law. That's not his focus. His focus is on you've got to come to Christ. You've got to see that Christ is the Messiah. It's all about Jesus. It's not about your tradition It's not about your family heritage. It's not about your ethnicity. You must come to Christ because forgiveness only comes through Jesus. It doesn't come through your church. It doesn't come through your baptism. 
It doesn't come through your behavior. It only comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. And the word forgiveness means the act of being freed and liberated from that which confines. It means the act of freeing you from guilt or punishment. We are all guilty. We all deserve God's punishment. And the way through that is not by attending church, becoming part of a certain denomination. The way through that is coming to Christ. To be pardoned, you must have your debt canceled. And in order to have your debt canceled, it can only be canceled by what Christ did, not by what you could ever do. My friends, nothing could be more freeing than to understand that all of your sins can be forgiven through Jesus Christ. Not just the big sins, not just the besetting sins, but all sin that you've ever struggled with for your whole life can be washed and you can be made new through the Lord Jesus Christ. You must come to Jesus. Don't come to church, don't come to the law, don't come to certain practices, you have to come to Jesus. This is what Paul's preaching. You come to the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you are in Christ this morning, you say, hey, Adam, I've come to Jesus. I'm with you, brother. I've been born again. Then understand this morning that Jesus paid your debt. He became your substitute. He died in your place. He suffered for you. He took the death penalty upon himself, and he was raised from the dead in victory, and he was raised in honor, and he was raised to never die again. He was raised as the Savior for all who would come to him by faith. This is 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And this message of forgiveness is to be proclaimed. This is something to be preached This is something that we focus on. It's not just something that we whisper about in the corners of the church. It's something that we proclaim. And Jesus said in Luke 24, 47, and repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. 1 John 2, 12 says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Peter had preached this earlier in Acts 5.31, God exalted him and at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. This is the message that Paul's preaching in Pisidian Antioch. And then we also see, your next blank, verse 39, that freedom comes from Christ and not through the law. Kind of saying the same thing a little differently, but in verse 39, we see that freedom comes from Christ, not through the law. He says, again, by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. In other words, if you continue to try to use the law to wash you, to use the law law to cleanse you, to obey the law to somehow make you in a right standing with God, it will never work. And the law never will break your sin pattern. The law will never break your sin habit. The law never changed anybody. The law condemns you before God. The law reveals the holiness of God. The law law reveals that standard which we could never keep, but one who did keep it perfectly, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has fulfilled the law 
and now extends mercy to all to free you. You're not bound to the law. We're bound to Christ. And that is a freeing message because Christ forgives and he cleanses and he has an abundance of pardon to extend to us through faith in him. Paul learned this and he talks about it. If you want to see it, turn to Philippians 3 where Paul talks about his own testimony. Very familiar passage for us today. Philippians chapter 3 verses 4 through 8 where Paul says, hey, look, I've learned this lesson. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. So he's like, I get it. Sometimes we brag about our own achievements and our own morality. We think we're good people. Paul's like, I was into that. I had confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I've got more. He said, I could could have beat all of you. Verse five, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So he's saying, hey, I did it all right. I walked your path. I was a Pharisee. I kept all the law just like you guys did. But you know what? Whatever gain I had, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. Everything I ever did, it's all lost. It's all in vain, he's saying. It equaled nothing. So indeed, I count everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. You know what Paul's saying? He's saying Christ is superior to whatever the law could do for you. Christ is superior. It's all a loss compared to knowing Christ, loving Christ, living for Christ. Everything else is rubbish in your life. You can never be cleansed by keeping the law. The law will not set you free. So Paul finally realized that no matter what he did, he could never be justified by keeping the law. Romans 3.28, Paul writes, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. The forgiveness offered by Christ frees sinners from what the law could never free you from. That's why Jesus says in John 8, 36, so if the Son sets you free, not if the law sets you free, not if keeping the Sabbath sets you free, church doesn't set you free, he says, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. That's a promise from Christ. You want freedom this morning? You're struggling with ongoing sin. You're struggling with the uncertainty of your own salvation. You're not sure if you've done enough to get into heaven. Has the Son set you free? Because it's only if the Son has set you free. If you're here this morning and you want to be free once and for all, then come to Jesus. Don't try to cleanse yourself first. Come to him as you are. Don't try to make everything right on your own. Come to Jesus and he will give you his imputed righteousness. Don't try harder to stop. Just confess your sin to God right here, right now. And receive the forgiveness that Jesus offers. The law cannot cleanse you and the Ten Commandments cannot save you. 
The law can no more cleanse you than the blood of an Old Testament sacrifice. The law can only condemn you, but Christ offers forgiveness and mercy through his sacrifice. And if you will repent of your sins and believe in Jesus with all of your heart, you will be made clean. Though your sins are like scarlet, he will make you as white as snow. He will throw your sins as far as the east is from the west. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Well, now that we've seen that the law will never be able to save you, let's look at our second heading. Number two, the warning of what could happen. The warning of what could happen. Verse 40, your next blank says, beware of the teaching of the prophets. So he ends his sermon with a warning. He says, verse 40, beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. What Old Testament prophets had to say does impact the New Testament believer. There are some today who are under the impression that the Old Testament prophets were only addressing Israel and various Old Testament occurrences, but that's not the case. Old Testament scriptures are still important for us to read today. Old Testament scriptures still inform us today. Old Testament prophecies addressed Christ's first advent, and many of them address his second advent at the second coming. We still need our Old Testament, is what I'm trying to say. Some people have unhitched the New Testament from the Old Testament, saying it no longer has value for a new covenant believer. But there's a lot I'm saying to you where the Old Testament still talks about things yet in the future. Like Jeremiah chapter 30, verses 7 through 9, it addresses Jacob's trouble, which is a reference to the tribulation. Daniel chapter 9, verses 25 through 27, also addresses a 70th week of Daniel, which is about a future seven-week tribulation or seven-year tribulation. And after the tribulation, Zechariah 14.4 talks about how Jesus' feet shall land on the Mount of Olives. At his second coming, I'm just starting to say the Old Testament is the word of God and it should not be disregarded. And the word of God is binding in our lives and in our hearts. In fact, it was largely from the Old Testament that Paul is referring to in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 when he writes, all scripture is breathed out by God. He's primarily talking about the Old Testament and any New Testament Scripture that had been written up to that point when he made the statement, but when he says all scripture, he's saying, hey, everything is profitable for what? For teaching. The Old Testament's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be equipped for every good work. You can't be properly equipped if you don't have your Old Testament open, reading it and equipping you for what it is that God's called you to do. Again, we understand that we don't follow all of the ceremonial law, dietary law. There are sections of the Old Testament law that have been fulfilled in Christ, and we've labored to demonstrate and share that with you, particularly through Peter's vision in Acts chapter 10 about how he's now able to kill and eat. But as far as the, the moral law and the construct of God's holiness and how Christians are to, to relate to God through Christ— and to look forward to God's sending of Christ at the second coming, there's so much of the Old Testament that we still need to read through. We need to read through all of it. Just saying there's parts of it that Christ has fulfilled, and there's parts of it that we're still living by. Basically, if you want to think of it this way, whatever the New Testament reiterates, and it reiterates a lot of Old Testament principles in Scripture, that's the part you're to follow. 
So if you're just struggling, like, wait a second, which part of the old, which part of the new? Whatever's in the new that reiterates the old, we're still living by, and it's a lot of it. Not, not just little bitty pieces of it, but huge whole chunks and concepts of it. All right, now Paul specifically points out a passage in Habakkuk. He said, hey, beware, you guys got to pay attention to the Old Testament prophets. That's what he said in verse 40. In verse 41, he gives them a, spe- a specific for instance. So the next blank says, be reminded of what happened in Habakkuk. Be reminded of what happened in Habakkuk. So he quotes from Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 5. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. Let me just say, if Paul had written his sermon before preaching it and then had it examined by a core of speech writers, they would have examined Paul's sermon and probably said something like this. Well, Paul, we think it's fine up until this last part. Everything that you've said until this last part has been upbeat. Everything is positive. Everything is good news. Everything is appealing to the senses of the audience. But then when you come with this particular quotation from Habakkuk 1.5, you have now compressed the word of the prophet Habakkuk, and we don't really think that's going to fly because this is actually a negative verse And we want to eliminate that from your sermon. Well, thank goodness Paul didn't have any core of speech writers helping him think through what it was that the Holy Spirit had him communicate. And really what we're seeing here is at the conclusion of Paul's message in Pisidian Antioch, after his masterful presentation of the gospel, Paul gave a warning to those who were assembled, quoting again directly from Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 5. So you know what we got to do? We got to turn there. That's it. If I'm going to preach about all this Old Testament stuff, let's go there. We're going to Habakkuk. Everybody, take your Bibles, turn to the left. To Habakkuk, there are 12 minor prophets at the end of your Old Testament scriptures. It's prophet number seven. You'll find it right between, uh, right between Nahum and Zephaniah. I know that's helpful. So I'm going to see what, what good Christians we have out here. You could go to the table of contents if you need to. But we're going to Habakkuk. That's what we're doing because... You need to see it in its context, all right? This, because this is a powerful ending to his sermon. Habakkuk 1, 1 through 3 says, the oracle that Habakkuk, the prophet, saw, and he says, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So Habakkuk is basically saying, man, these are tough times. Israel is um, committing a lot of violent acts. At verse 4, go ahead and look at verse 4. He, he tries to answer what he's struggling with. And he says, so the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. Again, It's like Habakkuk is saying something like, how can this be? God is on our side. How can God, who is too holy to even look upon evil, tolerate this kind of calamity that is befalling our nation right now? Habakkuk was, in a sense, complaining that morality had disintegrated, that nobody cared about virtue, and nobody cared about what was right, and everything was decided on the base of violence. And when God answers Habakkuk, In verses 5 through 9, 
God says to him, and verse five is what's quoted in Paul's sermon, but verse five says, look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. So again, you're like, okay, well, what's the work? What's God saying? What's he about to do? Verse six, for behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. So he's saying to Habakkuk, hey, you want an answer to what I'm gonna do about it? I'm gonna raise up the Chaldeans, a nasty nation who in their own right are more wicked than Israel. And I'm gonna raise them up and I'm gonna bring them into Israel to discipline Israel's disobedience. Israel's been disobedient. What am I going to do about it? I'm going to get another disobedient nation, and I'm going to bring them in to bring havoc on the nation of Israel. That's what he's saying. He's saying in verse 7, they are dreaded and fearsome, the Chaldeans. Their justice and their dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than evening wolves. Their horsemen proudly uh, press on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence and their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. Again, he's saying, When the Chaldeans are finished, Habakkuk is saying, they're going to leave destruction and catastrophe in their midst such as no one could possibly imagine. He's telling them it's going to get worse. You're going to be judged by the Chaldeans. These are the words spoken about God's judgment that was coming on Judah. And not only that, but God was going to use again this wicked nation as an instrument to bring severe judgment according to his word upon disobedient Judah. You got the context? He's not saying, hey, something awesome's gonna happen. He's like, beware, lest you be judged like Judah was judged by the Chaldeans because they did not repent and they did not turn to me. And they continued in their own way and in their own path, which was a disaster. And so I brought judgment upon them. And so now, You can turn back to Acts 13. Centuries later, Paul hearkened back to this Old Testament warning from the prophet and told the Jews assembled in the synagogue to beware that the same thing doesn't happen to them that already happened to their fathers when the hand of God's judgment fell upon them. He was warning them of things that could come at any time, things that they wouldn't believe no matter if it was told to them. Jesus also punctuated his sermons with a similar warning of future predictions of the same magnitude. As Jesus said in Luke 21, 6, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So Jesus is saying, hey, for this generation, you're gonna see this temple desecrated. Again, he says in Luke 21, 24, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Well, nobody in Israel believed that. They didn't believe that. But in AD 70 came about the worst Holocaust ever to come up to that point in Jewish history. Thousands upon thousands of Jews were killed under the Roman forces of Titus as that city was leveled and burned and the temple was destroyed, not to be rebuilt even to this very day. Nobody believed Jesus. 
And no unbelieving Jew here in Pisidian Antioch is believing Paul. They're not going to heed this warning. The choice with which Paul left his audience on that day is the same choice that we all face. You can either repent of your sin and believe in the gospel and be saved by grace, or you can reject God's free offer of salvation and face God's judgment for all eternity. God's grace and love do not cancel out his holy justice and hatred towards sin. And the sober words of the writer of Hebrews stand for all time as a warning to those who do reject the gospel. Hebrews 2, 1 through 3, therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard lest we drift away from it. Since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received as a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect a great salvation that was declared first by the Lord and it was attested by us who heard? So he's saying, hey, for all of us, for all of time, that's a principle, that a choice that is to be made, you can either repent of your sin by coming to Jesus or you can reject Christ in the message of the gospel and bear the wrath of God. That's all Paul leaves it with these believers or these uh, some unbelievers, some unbelievers, some Jews, some Gentile, all here in Antioch. So let's look next, our third heading. What's the response to this message? What's the response to Paul's message? He's now concluded it. And the initial response was that of hunger to hear more. Number three, the initial hunger to hear more. Your next blank, the desire to hear more preaching at church. So far, so good, at least as verses 42 is concerned, as they went out, so they're leaving church, just like we leave church every Sunday, we're walking out of church, they're leaving the synagogue, and the people begged that these things might be told them on the next Sabbath. So they're leaving church, they're like, Paul, you got to come back and preach more of that. We hadn't been hearing any good preaching in a long time. We've just been hearing the rabbis read things and talk about the Talmud and the Mishnah and other pontif pontificating all kinds of law, boring as all get out and leading people straight to hell. Paul comes in and fires it up. He's like, there's a man named Jesus and it's in him that you can be forgiven of everything you've ever done. People woke up. They start to listen. We got to hear more. Paul's powerful dynamic preaching left his audience wanting more. And the message that Paul preached was steeped in the Old Testament. He highlighted God's sovereign choice and care for Israel. Paul referred to Israel's greatest king, King David. Paul mentioned the prophecies that were referred to to be fulfilled by the Messiah. Paul preached that Jesus was the Christ. Paul made connections that no one had ever seen before. They were intrigued. They were curious to hear more, and they were stirred up in their knowledge, and it naturally led to, what else does this preacher have to say? The ability to arouse people's interest is the mark of a good preacher. Something similar happens later in Acts 17 when Paul preaches to a synagogue in Berea. Acts 17, 10 through 11, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness and examined scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So we see the effectiveness of the word being preached in Berea. Paul's faithful preaching there led to people uh, looking back at their Old Testament to see if these things indeed were true. They listened 
to Paul, but they also wanted to see these truths from themselves. Same thing happened a little bit later in Acts 17 when Paul goes to Mars Hill in Athens, Greece. He preaches the gospel in Acts 17, 32. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. Good biblical preaching should not be boring. Preachers should be expositing God's word and helping people understand life-changing, earth-shattering, thought-provoking answers to life's hardest questions. And the Bible properly proclaimed should never bore people, but should stir them up toward love and good deeds. And dividing the word of truth correctly gives people hope. It gives them purpose. It gives them an accurate understanding of God's holiness and man's sin and the redeeming blood of Jesus. You know what that means? As long as I'm preaching from the Bible, you fall asleep, that's on you. <laughs> my job's not to get up here and tell a whole lot of stories and share with you all the personal things going on in my family and to somehow highlight every single current event in the world. Is that my job? I hope not. My job is to preach the word. And if I'm preaching the word and you're not listening, that's on you. The boringness is not just from the speaker, it's from the listener who's unstirred and uninterested in the truth that's being proclaimed. Still love you, though. <laughs> Still love you. All right, let's move on. The next part here of the response was the desire to interact more about these things through the week. Verse 43, they want to interact a little bit more through the week. So some said, hey, we can't wait to hear you next Sunday or next Saturday on the Sabbath. But verse 43 says, and after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. You know what verse 43 is simply saying? There were some here on that day who they couldn't wait all week. They were like, next Sabbath? No, no, man, we want to talk with you right now. And many of those Jews were devout converts to Judaism who had followed Paul and Barnabas, and now they're hearing further teaching of the new covenant. They wanted to hear more. They, they interacted with an interest level that would have lended itself to natural conversations after the sermon and potentially throughout the week. A good sermon should stir up this kind of interaction. Hopefully, you don't come and leave on Sunday, and then Sunday after Sunday, unaffected or uninterested in learning more. Surely, for the growing Christian, there is interaction. There are healthy questions. There are conversations over lunch and in your small group that help you both process what you've learned and begin to apply biblical truth in your life. And Paul and Barnabas both extend the conversation and exhort the Jews and converts who eagerly listen to them to continue, verse 43 says, they, he, they want them to continue in the grace of God. Paul knew that after the flush of that first enthusiastic message that sometimes the interest begins to fade and that believers need ongoing words of encouragement. And so the verb continue in verse 43, gives the indication that these particular people have already put their trust in Jesus and have accepted him as their Messiah, and they are in fellowship with Jesus, and now Paul urges them to continue in that relationship. He wants them to remain loyal to the Lord and to walk in the grace of God. 
The word grace there is a word that Paul uses repeatedly throughout his epistles. It communicates God's decisive act to save people and to do so through the gift of Jesus Christ. And something similar had happened in Antioch of Syria when Barnabas was first sent there to verify God's work of the people. In Acts eleven twenty three, he came and saw the grace of God. He was glad and exhorted them to remain faithful to the Lord. In other words, Paul's sermon after his sermon was, hey, just keep staying faithful to the things that are being taught and live it out. A similar concept is given in Jude, verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Just saying, Paul wasn't just a preacher, he was also a shepherd. He didn't just exposit the word in the synagogue, he explained it in everyday life. Paul wasn't sneaking in and out of the green room at his crusade conferences. He was mixing and mingling with the people. He was accessible. He was available. He was actively involving himself with others for the sake of the gospel. I wonder if you're just as available to people who want to talk with you and interact with you to learn from you. I wonder if you make yourself as available as Paul and Barnabas did during this special week between one Sabbath and another. Let's move on to our fourth heading, number four, the transition from the Jew to the Gentile. Your next blank says A, the confrontation from the Jews, verses 44 through 45. The next Sabbath, so here we are a week later, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. So on the next Sabbath, the place was packed, standing room only. Word had gotten around about Paul's sermon and everyone and everybody wanted to see and hear what it was that Paul was going to preach this time. They most definitely were breaking the fire code. It happens sometimes, people. It's all right. But when the Jews are there, right, when the Jews, they are there, they understood and referred to unbelieving Jews. They saw the turnout. They were filled with jealousy. So the Pharisees, the Jews, those who didn't believe, they don't like it. They don't like the fact everybody's at church. They don't, they don't want everybody in the synagogue. They don't want to hear what Paul has to say. Does it sound familiar about how they're getting jealous? The same thing happened in Acts 5.17 when large crowds gathered to hear the apostles preaching in Jerusalem. But the high priest rose up, Acts 5.17, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. Same thing happened of the Jews of Jesus' day. It says in Matthew 27, 18, that Pilate knew that it was out of envy that they delivered him up. Jealousy is an awful thing. Jealousy can keep you from hearing, keep you from doing the right thing, and it can keep you from rejoicing with others. And in this case, it's the sin of jealousy that was keeping these Jews from saving faith the Jews began to speak against Paul. They began to speak against Paul's preaching. They began to speak against the truths of the gospel. Please note, it was not the God-fearing Gentiles, but the unbelieving Jews who set themselves against Paul and Barnabas. The Jews are realizing that the missionaries are reaping an evangelistic harvest, even though the Jews had witnessed for years in this same city with only a very small, meager result. Now all of a sudden, the place is on fire. And the Jews 
should have been the first in line to accept the gospel of salvation, but instead of heeding God's word, which had clearly been preached, they began to contradict the words of Paul. Luke even adds here that they do so abusively. The term Luke uses to describe their abusive action is the verb to blaspheme. They began to blaspheme, to revile him. That word revile could be translated as to abusive speech or blasphemy. That is the Jews blaspheme the Christ that was proclaimed by Paul and Barnabas. Most likely they were telling the crowds that this crucified man, Jesus of Nazareth, was a criminal who had been cursed by God. They were saying, don't believe what Paul's teaching about the resurrection. Don't believe about Jesus. Let's go back to our old way. Let's go back to our old covenant. Let's go back to Abraham and Moses and the extra laws that we've added to Abraham and Moses. And so your next blank says the clarification from Paul and Barnabas. They want to clarify what's going on. Verses 46 and 47, and Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly saying it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles for the Lord For so the Lord commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Well, by now, on their missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas had gotten used to opposition. And so they immediately speak out boldly. The word boldly here means to express oneself freely and fearlessly. It means to have courage in the face of danger or opposition. Paul and Barnabas did not tuck their tails and run. They stayed to fight, and because of God's love for his own people, the Jews, these missionaries, Paul and Barnabas, point out the necessity of their action. Because of God's love and concern for the Jews, Paul and Barnabas felt obligated to reveal this message of salvation first to them. The Jews were to be the recipients and the guardians of God's revealed word They are God's adopted children and they have received the law, the covenants, and the promises. They have the temple worship. They have honored the patriarchs from which the Messiah descended. God then compels, as he's explaining here, Paul and Barnabas to go first to the Jews and to proclaim the good news of salvation in Christ to them. But if the Jews refuse to listen to God's ambassadors, Paul and Barnabas will go to the Gentiles. And Paul had been called to serve as an apostle to the Gentiles, and without a doubt, Barnabas had that same calling. And in effect, the Jews had thrusted aside salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, and therefore they had judged themselves unworthy of eternal life. That's what Paul's saying. In the very, you guys have judged yourself. You don't deem yourself worthy of eternal life. Jesus told a parable about this, the wedding feast, where the king sent out his servants to invite guests, but they would not come. Remember that? Let's go invite all the guests. We're having a big wedding. Nobody showed up. So then he said, I tell you what, I want you to go to those who are invited. See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat calves, and have slaughtered them, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. So the king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers, and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite 
to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both good and bad, so the wedding hall was filled with guests. It's a parable where Jesus is saying the king, God the Father, has invited the Jews to come into salvation through Christ, and they would not. They rejected Christ. They killed the prophets. So God said, you know what? You guys are going to be wiped out. And I'm going back out into the highways and the byways to the Gentiles. I'm going to invite them all in to the wedding feast, to the, we- the, to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Anybody who will come. This is how Jesus is communicating that the gospel would go forth to the Gentiles. And this is what Paul's now saying to the Jews in Pisidian Antioch. Paul explained, we are now turning to the Gentiles. And then in verse 47, Paul quotes from Isaiah 49, 6, when he says, For the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. The narrow-minded view of salvation as an exclusively Jewish possession is even foreign to the Old Testament, which clearly taught that the Messiah would be sent to the Gentiles as well. There was no justification for the hostile, negative response of the Jewish people to Gentile salvation. That leads us to our final heading, number five, the joy and the pain of the Christian faith. A, the reaction of the Gentiles in verses 48 and 49. And then the Gentiles, when they heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord as many who were appointed to eternal life. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. So in contrast to the Jewish animosity, the Gentiles were elated. They began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. You mean Jesus came to save us? You came to save me? Unlike the priest who bragged, there was the poor man who beat his chest and said, oh God, I'm a sinner. You mean I can have salvation? You would, you would die for me? That's how the Gentiles were responding. They accepted. They were elated. They, they praised God for the fact that their souls could be saved from hell. They believed the gospel, and they let, let it take root in their lives. And we glorify God most when we hear his word and when we walk in obedience to his will. And in doing this, we find our joy and our satisfaction in knowing and in following Jesus And so the text says, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. This verse should be taken at face value. The Bible clearly teaches that God chose some before the foundation of the world to be saved. Ephesians 1, 4 through 5, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Verse 5, he predestined us for adoption to his sons, to be his sons. So the Bible unhesitatingly affirms that salvation, in salvation, man doesn't choose God. God chooses man. No one, Jesus stated plainly, can come unto me unless the Father who sent me draws him. John 6, 65. Colossians 3, 12. Paul described Christ, uh, excuse me, he described Christians as those who have been chosen by God. And we know that all of those who are chosen will respond to the effectual call of God with repentance and faith. And so in verse 49, it says that the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. 
Everybody whom God chose was born again. They were saved by faith in the gospel. It's a great balance, right? Paul's just preaching, all who come, you can come and be saved today. And if you come, you need to understand that it was God who drew you. It was God who changed you. He opened your eyes. He gave you faith. You were able to repent and believe because of his kindness toward you. And as they were rejoicing, the word was spreading throughout the whole region. You can't contain the truth. You can't silence the word of God. You can't put a muzzle on the faithful declaration of the love of God through Christ. Nobody can stop it. It spreads like wildfire. It's the best message the world has ever heard. Then we read in verse 50 the reaction of the Jews. So the Gentiles couldn't be more excited, but the Jews indicted the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, and they stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. The unbelieving Jews were like, get out of here. I don't want your Jesus, and I don't want your message. Be gone. Unable to beat these missionaries in a debate, the Jews had to call upon other people of influence in the city, the women and the men, They called upon them and they stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and had them driven out of the district. And we see this happen over and over again to Paul and the other missionaries as they continue on their journeys throughout the book of Acts. And we see in verses 50 and 51, our last blank, the reaction of the missionaries and their disciples, but they shook off the dust from their feet again against them. They shook off the dust of their feet against them and they went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with the joy, with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So Paul and Barnabas, what did they do? They shook the dust off their feet against them. This was an, an act of familiar symbolism. You remember when Jesus sent out the 70, he charged them in Luke 10, 10 through 12, that whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go out into the streets and say, even the dust of your town that cling to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. So Paul and Barnabas have that mindset as they leave Pisidian Antioch. They went to Iconium, which was a Roman colony about 80 miles southeast of Antioch, where they could no longer uh, stay where they were, but they left They could have no stronger condemnation than that. Paul and Barnabas, messengers of light, leaving the city and shaking the dust off of their feet is a symbolic act of judgment against that town. What are we learning about the response to all of this? Well, with pain also comes great joy. The disciples were filled with joy that they were considered worthy to suffer for the cause of Christ. The disciples were also filled with the Holy Spirit who continued to encourage them and to empower them and to enable them. The Holy Spirit was going to equip them to do what he wanted them to do. And so this incident is not to be viewed as one of defeat or as retreat, but but rather we're moving on to our next assignment to preach the gospel so that the whole world will know that Jesus saves. They're being strategic. It's time to move on. We're not staying here anymore. We've done our part. We've preached and proclaimed the word, and now God's calling me to the next opportunity, to the next person. Maybe you're in a similar situation today. 
and you just keep begging that that individual that you're witnessing to would be saved. I, I say keep doing it, but I say you also got to move on. There, there's at some point where you still pray for and look for those opportunities to re, reiterate gospel truths to family and loved ones, but you can't just stay there forever. You got to just keep moving. There are other people, there are other sheep not part of this fold. There's other places that you can go. Todd Koschuk's going to share a short testimony tonight about his trip to Uganda. There's hundreds and thousands of people in rural places all around Shannon and Danielle's little village in Kuba, Matwe, who are desperate to hear the gospel. If you can't share with somebody who doesn't want to listen, go somewhere where they want to. Again, I'm not saying don't go to the hard places like Japan, less than 1% evangelical Christians in Japan. I'm not saying don't go to the Middle East where you could give your life. I'm just saying... I don't know what I'm saying. I'm just saying, like, like, just be faithful where you are and go wherever God's called you, but don't stop. Don't stop. There's pain and there's joy in the midst of it all. If you're here today and you don't know Christ, we're inviting you to come. And as you come to him through repentance and faith, you can only be saved through Jesus. There is no other way. And if you want to talk about that after our final song, when we close our service, we have a few people. We'll be standing right here. And we'd love to share with you about the life-changing truth that's been preached in this message of how you could be born again through repentance and faith. If we can serve you in any way, it would be our joy to pray with you and encourage you. Let's close our service now in prayer, or at least this, this portion of our service. Dear God, thank you for today. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the faithfulness of Paul and Barnabas preaching the word, defending the faith, unashamed of the, the oppositions that they faced, preaching Jesus, nothing else, being faithful, and then leaving when they knew it was time to leave. There's a time to stay and there's a time to leave. And we, we need your wisdom to know what exactly that looks like. It's, it's no, no one of us can, can answer clearly what that might look like. But we want to be faithful to stay, faithful to go. We want to be strategic and effective in our mission, in our endeavor. We want to be faithful. I pray, God, that you would stir us up today to consider what principles from this passage would apply to our own hearts and our lives. That we would be warned of all of the the warnings we see throughout scripture that if we do reject Christ and if we do go our own way, if we do adhere to tradition and to the past more than an ongoing vibrant faith that is given to us only through gospel truths, that it would cause us to consider if we're here today, if we're really born again, if we really know the gospel, if we're really willing to do anything and everything, if we're really free from ongoing sin, which we can only be free through the Son of God. Pray that you would move in our midst, even as we prepare now for the Lord's table. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.